looking to stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, J.M. Prater, and I'm joined by co-host... Dan Ferlito. Our other co-host, Patrick Green, he wanted to be here today, but it just didn't work out. So we're kind of holding down the fort for him. He'll be back on our next episodes. Today, we are here to talk about the cult of fandom in the Blade Runner universe. And this is part of our series, A 700-Layer Cake. Uh, it's just an ongoing series that we're doing this year, which is a seminal year for Blade Runner. It's 2019. Our first couple episodes have been out already, one covering the life and uh, work of Philip K. Dick, which, of course, includes Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the novel that Blade Runner is taken from. And then we were able to go to Joanna Cassidy's house and interview her, which was an amazing time. And we all met up for the first time. But this episode is a part one of two episodes. We really wanted to get into what people were talking about in terms of Blade Runner when the film was out in the 80s um, to see if that spell that we always feel like we're under when it comes to the original Blade Runner film and certainly 2049, but we're concentrating on the original film. If people feel that same sense of specialness that we feel or they felt that back in the 80s. But really, we wanted to dive into the fandom of Blade Runner and what that means, what people were thinking about in the 80s when the movie was coming out, how the film was playing out sort of in the hearts of minds of, of certain people. And during our investigation slash my investigation of fandom, I came across City Speak, which is the first sort of informal slash official zine for the Blade Runner universe back when the film was still in theaters. And I found this zine through Blade Zone, which of course everyone knows what Blade Zone is, which is sort of the first really major official fan outpost. Paul Salmon helps to run it. Craig Chicoin, who's we're going to have on this episode, he is a part of it. Carla Rosa, um, she's also a part of Blade Zone, but Blade Zone's Gary been around. Willoughby. We'll Gary be Willoughby. Yep. It's been around for a long, long, long time. Gary Cassell, he's also a part of, he essentially started uh, Blade Zone by himself and then other people kind of became involved in it. So during that research and during kind of exploring Blade Zone, we stumbled upon City Speak. And I really felt like it was appropriate to read the first issue of City Speak and talk about the founder a little bit and read her words. Uh, the founder of City Speak, her name is Sarah Campbell. She unfortunately passed away, I think, in the early 90s. She's uh, no longer. No, I, it was only a couple of years, actually. I think it might have been 87 or, actually, or something like right. that. Yeah, she yeah. wasn't. Unfortunately, she, uh, she passed early. And what's amazing about Sarah is I don't even know what she looks like, but this film was speaking to her intensely the way that it speaks to all of us in a way sometimes that we can't describe. And in, in that language, it was talking to her. She felt like she needed to do more. So she started a zine called city speak. And so what I wanted to do is read her first kind of opening 
we're going to discuss it a little bit and then we'll read another letter and just kind of discuss it. And then we'll move on and hear some other voices of people involved in fandom and how Blade Runner sits with them and sort of some, some bullet points of how they became a part of Blade Runner, the Blade Runner fandom and kind of what it means and how it sits with them today. So. Yeah. The scope here is we're trying to sort of harken back to the early fandom of a film that was not a commercial success into the cult that it became. And some of these people are still involved in fandom now, while others like Sarah are no longer with us. But we want to kind of bridge the gap between sort of the pioneers of Blade Runner fandom that were creating the first sites back in the nascent days of the internet and and personal computers and all that, you know, the early 80s into the 90s uh, to now. And for those of you who want to follow along at home while Jamie and I are referencing this stuff, we'll put it in the show notes. You can Google, all this stuff is public, but we'll uh, we'll put it in show notes so it's easy to access and you can follow along if you want, if you'd like. Totally, yeah. Uh, if you want to download the, the first edition of City Speak, it's, not, it's only available on Blade Zone as far as I know. Um, I would also recommend uh, everyone check out Blade Zone's site. It's really, really great. So it's, it's a well of information. It's been around a long, long, long time. Um, but again, we wouldn't exist without Blade Run, without Blade Zone existing. Um, we're kind of, I feel like, in our own way, um, uh, a child of Blade Zone. You know, they were around kind of keeping the fort way before us. When we were kids, they were doing this. Um, so uh, just kind of props to them and much respect to everyone involved in Blade Zone. And we're only reading a sampling of this City Speak zine, uh, which I haven't read in its entirety, but I just noticed there's a 1982 Harrison Ford interview uh, on there that probably many many of you haven't read. So there's lots of good stuff in there. Absolutely. So we're going to start right now with uh, the first letter by the founder of City Speak. It's called Philip K. Dick, Goodbye, Hello by Sarah Campbell. And here it goes. I imagine that somewhere in the vast, mysterious cradle of creation, Philip K. Dick must be having himself a pretty good time. Think of everything he has to keep himself laughing. The various squabbles over Blade Runner, the prospect of further confusion over two more forthcoming films based on works of his, and the hilarious rush by mainstream critics to recognize and eulogize his genius. Naturally, they knew it all along. Yeah, yeah, where were they when he needed them? It would be possessive of us to dedicate this first issue of City Speak to Philip K. Dick and perhaps a bit self-glorifying, but it's not too much to dedicate it to the spirit of this fine writer, a spirit which was always passionately present in his work, stories of anger, compassion, and wonder. Hopefully, not all of this spirit has been returned to the creative force. Some of it remains behind to become part of our own creative ideals. When Blade Runner first came out, I remember feeling furious that Dick had died at such an unfair time. How rotten it was that he was gone. Now that I have had time to discover more of his writing, however, I keep thinking, thank God this guy existed. What I find interesting about City Speak and these letters, but specifically the voice of Sarah, is she is the first voice into this kind of world of fandom and it's not a man's voice which typically these fandoms that we see or experience or are part of like we are in alien or blade runner or many different things that we're all involved with they're mostly surrounded by men there are maybe a couple of women here and there but this first entry is not just started by a woman but most of the letters that are incorporated in this zine are all from women and I, I, it, I just felt like it was important to, to note that, um, that this film was really reaching a wide audience, not just the typical, um, 
you know, the demographic of men like 25 to 40, you know, 40 year olds that Hollywood's always after this film. was, And this is the theatrical cut, no less. This isn't the final cut, which I think arguably speaks louder to me than the theatrical one does. But this film was really touching people. And uh, it, it's great to to read, you know, how old is this letter now or this zine? So this was 82. No. Was this 86 that the zine uh, came out? No, no, no. No, no, this is like 82. Okay, yeah. she, so... She died in 86. So this was so from... December 82, so only a few months out. The movie came out in the summer. So, so this is almost 37 years old, the zine. It's crazy. Um, but it, it's, again, it's also very familiar. It's some of the words that we use, some of the emotions that we feel. So I felt it was really um, poignant. Yeah, and uh, I think that it's good that we're kind of honoring what she started because this is something that only had a couple of issues and went away and i think most fans don't know about it you can uh find it online you know we have the whole thing we're only reading a couple of excerpts um and you know i think it's fitting that she talks about dick dying at such an unfair time and how rotten it was that he was gone and it's kind of ironic that she passed away i don't even know from what but she was young she passed away five years later so kind of uh, along the same lines as Dick uh, is how she sort of exited um, this whole universe and concept. But, you know, we have her legacy in writing, which is uh, really powerful. The next letter that we're going to read, um, and there's a lot, again, like Dan said, feel free to find the zine. It's really, really uh, a great time capsule um, as a fan, as a as a, a lover of history, even cinematic history, to see what, what films were doing. 82 was a very powerful year for films. Uh, a lot of the films that I love came from that year. Um, but yeah, I just find this and read it. We're going to make it available as well uh, through our site and our page. We would love to hear back from anyone or everyone who reads this and uh, hear what they what they have to say about what they read and uh, what people were feeling. Again, remember that they were responding to the theatrical cut. And, you know, there's a ton of people who love the theatrical cut. There's people who prefer the final cut. But uh, I just think it's important to remember what film that they were responding to. So this is the first in a section of letters to the editor, so people writing in to Sarah Zine. And this is Kathy Vergano from uh, Dubois, Pennsylvania, October, November 1982. So this is only a few months after, and don't forget, the theatrical release, which has the voiceover, etc. Remember which version of the movie we're talking about here. We here in Dubois got to view Blade Runner in our totally prehistoric drive-in, and everyone came out with severe eye strain and total frustration over how we had to view the film. Two of us drove to Pittsburgh the following morning to really see the film, and then I re-saw it in New York City. We have bought the portfolio, she says Cinefax, I think she means Cineflex, American Cinematographer, and all other available articles on Blade Runner, plus the original book, storybook, you name it, plus wall-to-wall buttons, and I'm a member of the Blade Runner fan club. I sent in the application in my son's name. I really did like that movie, and I'm happy to learn there is a zine. The Blade Runner fan club is neat for my son, but I got the 8x10 of Harrison Ford, and he got the spinners. Fair is fair. I really think the movie suffered from Warner Ladd's inability to decide if it was a kid's movie. I have been annoyed at Warner's for months, and my revenge will come when they release it on videotape in December, as the rumor goes. Then I can buy it and run it until it or I wear out. The kid's novelization of Blade Runner, with the nice big print that I don't need the glasses for, is just weird. If I were Ford, I'd be annoyed. 
Here he puts it. Here he puts in so much time and almost gets his face on another Dixie cup. I don't know if it's that they don't know how to sell science fiction or if someone thinks that we, we the paying audience, are just too dumb to understand. Thanks a lot. So they make it simple, easy, do a voiceover in case we miss something, hit us over the head and say, did you get that? Yeah, we did. I think Hollywood has lost touch with us. They think we can't possibly decide what we could like, so they decide and then they panic and totally mess up. Soylent Green is another science fiction book that got a bit confused going to the screen. There are comparisons between that movie and Blade Runner. Charlton Heston played a cop living in a dismal city, tracking down an assassin, a man without much feeling, until Lee Taylor, Young, and E.G. Robinson awaken some feeling of caring in him. He dies or appears to die at the end, but he has hopefully given hope to the others. In Blade Runner, I appreciate the Tyrell slogan, more human than human. They were. The replicants wanted to live, a very human emotion. And they wanted to know when, don't we all want to know that, and they, like the two in Soylent Green, taught or reminded Deckard about feelings, carings, human emotions. I honestly think the comparisons between the two movies are there. Even my husband, who doesn't remember much about movies, stated the comparisons. He preferred Deckard's cop to Heston's. Heston is always in control, even when he's dying. And I like Chuck. Deckard's reactions were more real, human, not superhuman. Dick's book, Do Androids Dream, was good. It was not a movie, although had Dustin Hoffman accepted the lead, as Scott said he offered it to him, I would see Dustin Hoffman worrying for two hours about owning a real animal. No reflection on Hoffman. I like his films. But with Scott directing, the movie needed Ford's Deckard, not worrying about owning a real animal, but just a cop dealing with the real situation. I'm very impressed with a quote from Philip Dick in Starburst number 49. Quote, Science fiction acts as a guide to help people cope with the present. It should sharpen our concern and ability to handle current problems. It should not be used as an escape. Science fiction is now deeply involved with the reality of today, which is always passing into tomorrow. And it's tomorrow we have to control if we are to survive. End quote. The author, Tony Crawley, started off with the dick quote and ended with, quote, We may well be put off by Harrison Ford looking mean and acting rather than babysitting cute robots. But that's all to the good. Movie science fiction has got to grow up and become as mature as science fiction books, end quote. I'm a science fiction fan. At least I use the term. Maybe I'm more of a pop science fiction fan. But it started with the first TV set and a kid watching Buster Crab movies, and it's gone on ever since. The imagination and creativity that came from someone to conceive and create those stories. That's what I admire. I have trouble reading a lot of pure science fiction. I never got through Dick's Vallis. Can read Larry Niven, Bradbury, and Daly, which is pure pop but fun. Editorial note, Bradbury's pop. I find his science fiction fantasy purer than anyone else's. He's just more readable than the others. I was quite impressed with the reviews from England that I've seen. Blade Runner is evidently doing quite well overseas. Apparently, both Ford and Howard like the movie, which makes me feel better. Dubois, of course, doesn't review movies. Just Little League. My kids play soccer. So at times, the place is a total zero. It's interesting because this thing really works like a time machine in a lot of ways. And so this is uh, Dubois, Pennsylvania. And from the sound of her describing her town, it's a very suburban like she's like a soccer mom. And it's like, you know, very suburban living. Yet they just bought a VCR, which if you'll remember from Gary Willoughby's interview, were like two grand at the time in 1980s money. So that's yeah. And I would imagine she probably bought not just a VCR. She bought a beta, a beta, like a a beta player, not a VCR. 
she said VHS, so I I would imagine that with new technology coming out, she wouldn't have used that term unless got that's it, what it got was. It. I just think that they all... were there available that early, but I was only six at the time, so who I knows? think betas were available earlier than that. Like okay. betas came out in the late seventies, I want to say, yeah. and then and then there was an overlap, but got VHS it. quickly sort of eclipsed that technology. Anyways, again, the important thing is that you know once the nineties came around, a VHS was a totally normal cost, like probably one hundred fifty bucks or something. But two grand in nineteen eighty two, that's like at least four grand now i would imagine or mm-hmm. something you know it's a lot of money for a suburban family so obviously she cared enough about film and um at the time she wrote the letter she's talking about it's going to come out in november so while this was published in december this letter was written before she had the tape at home to watch so she is still describing her theater experience um and it's interesting because Right off the bat, she has a lot of the opinions of people that criticize the theatrical cut. And again, I think we've made it clear to fans that we understand a lot of people love the theatrical cut. And even for some people, it's their favorite version. We're not here to dump on the theatrical cut. It's not our favorite version, but we will devote future episodes to talking about that. So don't be discouraged. If you love the theatrical cut, we're going to give it its its due and and give it justice and ask you guys your opinions. But for the purpose of this episode... Um, she's talking about the editing problems and what, you know, how, uh, they weren't sure whether they were making a kid's movie or a film noir or what they were doing. And she talks about the voiceover. So it's apparent that fans that were really steeped, uh, right away into this, this culture, this, this universe that started, um, you know, notice those flaws and, and something felt off to them and overly explained with the, with the voiceover and all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to see that in the past. It's, it's not- almost a validation to me a little bit. Not that, not that I invalidate the theatrical cut, but just that, yeah, you, you are understanding what I understood. I didn't need to be told those things. I got it. I understood it. Yeah. And, it, and, and that opinion, which is the most popular opinion, I think, again, more people love the final cut and, and most people, at least from a filmmaking perspective, dislike the voiceover. Um, so it's interesting to see that that's not just like revisionist history. Like that is how a lot of people felt right off the bat. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about Philip Dick because uh, in this period, I've been like getting more into Philip Dick's books and listening to some audiobooks. The... Um, the Man in the High Castle is, is doing season three now. Mm-hmm. I think that's out. I haven't watched it yet, but um, I read that book a couple of times. And, you know, she talks about, I mean, for one, at the time, I think people were a lot less familiar with Philip Dick. I certainly was. I mean, I was unborn in 82. But my point being that I saw Blade Runner first and then later went back and read Androids in high school. And I didn't even like it the first time I read it. But the point being they're two very different mediums. Um, it's difficult to compare the novel to the film because they're two completely different things. And I just always found it really fascinating that Philip Dick was this guy who kind of famously sort of hated Hollywood and was really distrusting of Hollywood. You can hear that when Hampton Fancher in interviews talks about his first interviews with him where the guy was like, who are you? You're some hack from Hollywood and blah, blah, blah. Yet, Philip Dick has had uh, the most, I don't know if he holds the record, but he's certainly like one of the most prolific book to screen um, authors. 
uh, between if you go on IMDb, he has like some 80 something credits or something like that in terms of short stories to, you know, longer novels, et cetera. Of course, most famously, uh, Total Recall is a good example. Minority Report, uh, A Scanner Darkly, which I just listened to the audiobook and really recommend. That was great. And so it's interesting to see kind of the magic of how this guy's writing ended up in so many films and became a part of American uh, consciousness and sort of pop culture, uh, which is just something you would have never predicted from Philip Dick. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, and, I would even call Dick, for all intents and purposes, the father of American science fiction. I mean, we've had more of his works developed for science fiction, exclusively science fiction, than anyone else, I would say, as an author. I don't know anyone else who has that kind of notoriety or the amount of work translated into or for the screen translated on the screen for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, that's uh, what I yeah. mean. Yeah. 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 And you know, and he's award winning and, and I think in the second half of the 20th century, he was, he became one of the more famous, uh, science fiction writers, you know, after all the originals and, and Jules Verne and, and all that stuff. Um, and Heinlein and, you know, I, um, yeah, I just recently listened to a podcast on Starship Troopers, and I won't go into that too much because it doesn't have that much to do with this. But it's it's really interesting to see what directors take from novels and what they want to highlight and how they want to implement it. As a quick example, Heinlein, he sort of became more right wing in his older age. You know, he was in World War Two, I think. And, you know, he was kind of pro military and. He wrote a yeah, somewhat f like a, basically a book that was kind of flattering on fascism and authoritarianism and sort of society where everyone goes into the military and, and there's that kind of soldier culture. But Verhoeven is famous for not having that point of view and for wanting to talk about controversial subjects like that. Yet it becomes really difficult to even a, whether it's fictional like science fiction or a re, an actual war movie that's fictionalized or not it's really difficult sometimes to make a war movie where you're trying to show the horrors of war where you don't end up accidentally glorifying war you know full metal jacket's a good example i think kubrick was famously anti-war yet his film is has devotees from both sides of the aisle um and starship troopers often is superficially looked at as a like pro -militar militarism kind of movie where that's not what Verhoeven intended. So my point being, it's always interesting from pen to paper or typewriter, what ends up on screen later and how people take that because that becomes, if it's a good movie and it's popular, that becomes more a part of modern consciousness. I think a lot of times than the original novels. Um, and, and of course Blade Runner has its own special example because the film diverged so much from the novel and became its own thing. So anyways, it's, I think it's really fascinating. And to get back to uh, Kathy Vergano's letter, what I think is interesting when she's talking about the voiceover, when I think about the voiceover myself, it reminds me of the book. Uh, the voiceover is, has the voice of the book to some degree. It just feels more noirish for sure. But it just, when I, it just, I don't know. There's just a connection that I make. I, when I'm reading the book, I'm hearing, Harrison's vo Harrison Ford's voice read it uh, but when we get to the final cut there is no voiceover and it feels very separate from the book 
Um, so I think it's, that's interesting. But another thing I wanted to mention about Kathy Vergano. So this was 1982. She's 39. The woman's almost 77 now. Wow. Um, yeah, that's great. So I would, I don't know if she's still alive. I would hope she is. I would, I don't know if she listens. I don't know what she's interested in. I don't know if uh, Blade Runner has resonated with her all of these years. Her children were 12 and a half and 14 and a half, I think she said. So her, her kids are older than we are. Her kids are probably in their 50s. Um, it'd just be interesting to hear from that family and how the film stuck with them, their, the memories of their mother. So certainly if anyone's listening whose mother or who is Kathy Vergana, we would love to hear from you. We think it's just, uh, again, a great moment in time uh, in a very historical year for film. So the next guest we're going to hear from is Craig Chacoin, and Craig has been a part of Blade Zone. He does off-world news. He also does Kipple Zone. Craig has been, a, again, a placeholder in fandom for a long, long, long time. Unlike a lot of fans, he didn't come to Blade Runner during its release. He came much later. He didn't come to Blade Runner until, I think, around 92 when the director's cut was released. But it even wasn't with the director's cut. It was with the soundtrack. He heard the soundtrack first and thought, what is this? He's going to explain that a little bit more. But it was just a very different experience than many of us who saw the theatrical cut first. So I'm going to let Craig take it away and uh, we'll be back afterwards. Thank you for inviting me to your awesome podcast. I was properly introduced to Blade Runner sometime around 1997 after I purchased Van Gelis' Blade Runner album, and that coincided with the release of the director's cut, which I promptly got shortly thereafter. Blade Runner certainly had an impact on me. I was blown away by the opening sequence and transported into an old, new world. It was the environment, the cityscape, together with the music that drew me in. And after watching it for the first time, I had so many questions. I had to watch it again and again. And it wasn't like I could talk to friends or coworkers about the movie. They'd never even heard of it. I wanted to learn more about it. I wanted to explore its themes, its world. So when I got a computer, that's just what I did. And that's when I found a community of fellow Blade Runner fans online at Blade Zone. It was quite the online community. The website was still growing. There were articles, art, music, fan fiction. They had contests where you'd win Blade Zone merchandise, and of course, Blade Runner related news, anniversaries, birth dates, and so forth. And in the early days, we used ICQ, an instant messenger chat room, and we'd schedule times when we'd meet to live chat. Between that and Blade Zone's off world forums, it was the place where every Blade Runner fan went to at that time. At Blade Zone, I became a moderator of the off-world forums before finally becoming its administrator from 2006 to 2010. And I took over the off-world news after Jerry Kissel stepped down. And I also managed the Blade Zone study project for those who wish to find out if there's life on the off-world colonies before moving there. And I'm a team member of the Blade Zone Facebook page. A lot of the same conversations that we have today about Blade Runner, we had back then in the forums too. The Decorep debate, Gaff's origamis, about the props, what things meant, your favorite scene location, Blade Runner, good storytelling, Clovis versus Roy, and the Blade Runner prequel sequel debate. 
With the latter discussion back in 2005, there was a poll on whether there should be a prequel or a sequel. The percentage fluctuated. In 2008, it was 50-50, but by 2012, 51% voted no. And the posts were just as passionate as with the Decarep debate. In 2006, user Roy William wrote, the idea of a sequel-prequel isn't nearly as important as the love and talent behind it. None of the above wrote, even if Ridley Scott made the prequel or sequel, it would not be as unique as the first. For myself, part of what makes Blade Runner so fascinating is its mysterious quality. The enjoyment is not in the details, but the lack of. I don't see how another Blade Runner film could keep that quality. Naturally, a sequel or even a prequel would want to present a greater scope on the Blade Runner world. If we learned more about the off-world colonies, would Decker's Los Angeles be as tragic? There's a domino effect of story elements like that, that if explained, would lessen the impact of the first film. Kuda Klan wrote, With the alternate adaptions of Blade Runner, I can conceive a prequel and a sequel simultaneously. The Terminator series is centered on this principle. Tron pioneered a culture that was in its infancy at that time. It is a coin toss on the CGI of Jeff Bridges. Either it is accepted or unnatural to some. If Harrison Ford is willing to partake in the role of cowboy sci-fi, returning to make a cameo appearance would be peachy. The controversy of Deckard being human or replicant can be put to rest. Deckard's human introduction to the replicant version, similar to Tron Legacy, is a storyline one can dabble in two detectives collaborating for a common goal. In 2007, Ridley Knorr wrote, I would love to visit the world of Blade Runner again. The most important thing would be the mood and the atmosphere of it. If it is done with the detail that Ridley put into the first one and with the acting talent, I think it may end up being just fine. Also, the soundtrack should fit as well as the Vangelis one. I would prefer it not turned into an action flick. The problem with it would mostly be money and the Hollywood agenda. If it can't prove to make money, it'll have its budget be far too small, or turned into a Michael Bay mindless action vehicle, as much as CGI lends itself to too many possibilities and the bad choices that follow. A primarily CGI film could be done with restraint that could also keep its budget low. See Sin City and 300. Also, an anime-style film might not be too bad in the spirit of Akira, or Ghost in the Shell. If the Scott Brothers worked on it, it could also be an interesting film. Otherwise, we would just end up with a Total Recall or Soldier. Sequel, prequel? Yes. Remake? No. I chatted with Andrew Polkin today, also known as Ridley Knorr, and after seeing the sequel, he had this to say. I think the sequel was good, but it was going for a minimalist modern style and taking out the vintage noir anachronistic style took away a large part of what I loved about the first film. It lost its texture and depth. It actually became kind of pretentious in style, like a Chanel perfume commercial rather than a gritty urban noir. Even the urban scenes felt blocked off and organized rather than chaotic. It was a good film, but did not fully satisfy my appetite. It became a cliché to show the future as this hyper-clean, minimalist, primary colored perfection until films like Star Wars, Alien, and Blade Runner broke that trend. I feel sad it is going back to that. But even before then, before the off-world forums, this movie and these topics were discussed in the fanzine CitySpeak. CitySpeak is an integral part of Blade Runner fandom history. 
and is a fanzine that spearheaded the Blade Runner fandom long before the movie achieved its cult status. City Speak represents an early generation of fanfiction writers before the advent of the World Wide Web. They'd meet in person, talk over the telephone, and send letters via the post. There was an underground fanish activity that produced usually no more than a hundred copies of each issue, and was spread primarily by word of mouth or through a friend of a friend. First released in December of 1982, the fanzine would only produce three issues until Steady Speak editor Sarah Kimball's untimely death. The last issue, the special edition, was published posthumously. Back in 2007, Andrew Polkin, a Blade Runner fan prop maker and collector, sent me a copy of the first City Speak issue, and it blew my mind. I then embarked on an investigative journey to learn all that I could about the fanzine and the people behind it. Aside from a mention in Paul M. Salmon's book, Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner, where I first learned of it, there really wasn't much else known about Steady Speak outside the small network of subscribers and hardcore Blade Runner fans. The first issue of Steady Speak was an intelligent, insightful, and fascinating read. It contained an editorial, three letters, a reprinted interview from Rogue's Gallery, unofficial Harrison Ford fanzine, two fan fictions, a poem, and a transcript of a group discussion about the movie. While the letters contained fascinating perspectives and impressions, one of the highlights of this issue was the transcript of the discussion of Blade Runner, titled A Chittown Talkathon. The depth of their discussions was incredibly impressive, especially considering that the only source materials they had, besides seeing Blade Runner in the theater, was reading what materials were released in magazines at that time. There was no internet, and the VHS video wasn't released until the following year. The discussion took place at the 40th World Science Fiction Convention held in September of 1982 in Chicago. The article was divided between the first two issues of City Speak. The first half of the article covered such topics as their first impressions of the film, comparing and contrasting the film and the novel, what the film critics overlooked in the movie, the little details, hidden gems found throughout the scenes, and their assessments of some of the characters, among other things. The second half of the article dealt with Deckard and his magic, the Deckard-Rep theory, movies as products, and the ending of the film. The other highlight of the first issue was the article The Unseen BR by Anne Elizabeth Zeke. I was truly astounded by the depth of insight written in this article. The Unseen BR focuses on the effects that a review can have on a movie in American society. Anne Elizabeth described how most of the American reviewers completely missed the point of the film. For example, her depiction of the metaphors in Zora's death scene was enlightening. She praised this scene, exclaiming it one of the most metaphoric scenes in the entire movie. She referenced Deckard's VK session with Rachel with Zora's death scene by pointing out their interconnectedness, using Deckard's line, he shows you his butterfly collection plus the killing jar. She wrote, Zora's death struggle takes place within glass walls. There is one moment of truly terrible beauty when she falls for the first time and her blood-striped coat wings out from her body. Zora becomes the butterfly in the killing jar. The attempt to attach the butterfly's symbol to Zora is strengthened by the earlier image, one of the most beautiful in the film, of her within the glass bell jar of the hairdryer. Similarly, she described and compared another scene with the VK session between Holden and Leon, she compared Pris's death scene, when she's kicking and screaming on her back, to a line from Holden when he said, The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't. She continued, 
it is with precious death that Deckard, of whom there may, indeed, have been some doubt earlier, passes his own white comp test. The deaths are cathartic, and make us realize our humanity so much more immediately. Closing her article, Anne Elizabeth predicted, Memory spans being short, there's hope for Blade Runner. People will come to see an intelligently made movie, a movie that makes you think, a complete film experience. I believe that time has come. Through the excerpts and interviews featured in the City Speak Revisited article that I wrote, we catch a glimpse of Sarah Campbell and the passion she had for this film. They show us just how much of an impression Sarah had on those around her, and how the memories of her had now subsided in the least. She indeed holds a special place in the hearts of those who knew her. Paul Salmon had this to say about the article. Congratulations on your solid journalism. I of all people know what's really involved in tracking down difficult-to-find interview subjects, and then properly recording their thoughts about and experiences regarding past projects. Pat on the back, sir. A good job well done. Regarding the question about the Decarep theory, we've all heard the passionate debates for and against, but for me, simply put, he wasn't meant to be. Deckard was not intended to be a replicant in Blade Runner. But at some point during the shooting of the film, Ridley Scott fancied the idea. We can speculate away as to why he leaned towards this position. But the fact of the matter is, he made it so. So yes, he is a replicant in the movie. But he was not meant to be. Personally, I'd prefer the character to be human. It makes more sense to me. To me, having him as a replicant is a cheap plot twist. Off-world news, keeping you up to date on all things Blade Runner. 2019 marks his 20th anniversary. The off-world news started out as a newsletter back in 1999 as part of the Blade Runner fan site Blade Zone. It was sent via email every month or more as news rolled in about anything Blade Runner related. In 2007, I took over from Jerry Kissel. And since then, it had changed formats and has its own place on the web where all the news and articles can be viewed at one's leisure without necessarily having to subscribe via email. In 2009, the off-world news joined the Twittersphere. Aside from the occasional article, I put together a periodic news digest. In it, I feature Blade Runner-related news, articles, fan art, fan music, fan fiction, poetry, videos, podcasts, and miscellaneous. What is Kipple's own? It was a place where I could feature my own inspirations from fan fiction, comic, music, and articles, and as an online resource for Duendra's Dream of Electric Sheep and Blade Runner fan fiction written by others. Kipplestone also features Kipplepedia, which is a Duendra's Dream of Electric Sheep and Blade Runner glossary, a YouTube channel, Facebook page, and a Pinterest page. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor and a privilege being on this podcast. That was Craig Chicoin. Again, thank you so much for giving us your thoughts and for your place in fandom and for essentially being a tentpole and uh, a pillar in fandom, even quietly behind the scenes. A lot of people are aware of what Blade Zone and Kipple Zone and Off-World News are, but oftentimes people don't understand or are aware of... Um, who the people are behind it. They just kind of go to these places and they look for news and they interact, but they're not aware that there are, you know, people who've been doing it for many, many years. So Craig is going on probably almost 30 years. Well, no, not that quite long, probably around 20 years of being fully invested in fandom. I mean, spending his days and nights 
writing news, writing up things, interacting with fans, much like we do as hosts of Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. So it was great to hear just kind of his legacy and uh, the, the conversations that were going on on Blade Zone in their forums, much like conversations that we have today on social media. A lot of these things that we're discussing, they're not new topics. I mean, some things might be new, like, for instance, the discussion of joy, but even those discussions that we've had about joy or whether it's K or or love or whoever, a lot of those conversations have their beginnings in conversations about Roy Batty or conversations about Rachel. Um, they're similar questions. You know, who is joy? Is joy real? Is Rachel real? Is Rachel just a washing machine, you know, with lipstick on? Is joy just, in my perspective, a, you know, a, a digital signal? Right, yeah, the, the larger topics, um, generally speaking, have been brought up about the nature in, of AI and loneliness and um, morality and empathy. Uh, but, of course, 2049 opened up a whole new uh, can of worms and in a different setting with different characters, different questions were asked, uh, different answers were not provided. <laughs> and... Um, so yeah, and, and of course, you know, and, and Bladezone has a Facebook page and, you know, some things have moved on to the sort of more social media, the, the modern version of social media interacting. Um, whereas back then, of course, it was a different format with, you know, websites being created probably with like actual, you know, HTML coding and, and you know, more cumbersome and took a lot more work to create. Now we have Squarespace and all these things that help us make a website more easily. Well, help competent people make a website more easily. We still struggle with it, but, <laughs> um, but yeah. And so, you know, the old forums, um, have now mostly been replaced by the online chats and sort of the Facebook comment feed. But, um, yeah, it's interesting to see that transition in the technology and in the fandom. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, um, also satisfying in a way. Um, I, I'm, even though these conversations have been going on for a while, it's great to kind of see new iterations. It's a really great and humbling thing to be in a universe or a fandom standing alongside the originators of fandom. People like Gary Cassell, who started Blade Zone, Gary Willoughby, Craig Chacoin, Carla Rosa, our friend, and every and Paul Salmon, who's also involved in Blade Zone to some degree. Just you know. These people were, do again, we've said this before, but these people are doing what we're doing now. They were doing it, they've been doing it for years, sort of unnoticed. And I think that's kind of how, how fandom went for a long, long, long time. Even, you know, uh, to relate, back in the 90s, when before Alien Resurrection came out, I did a fanzine called uh, At Play in the Viper Pit. And it was through Hotmail email. And I would write out all these things and I would get guest con contributors and send out these Hotmail um emailed zines essentially and i would have contests and nobody really knew me they just knew my email address and uh and that's again that's how things operated back then um whereas now we're in a an era of having a cult of personality to some degree i mean there are people who kind of go way far with that and they're they kind of make everything about them as opposed to about maybe the 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 film that they, they love or whatever. It's more about how they see the film that they love or series or whatever it is that interests them. Um, but I do want to pivot to one thing um, before I, we, 
I was just going to add for a second. Go this ahead. is also back when Jamie was in his 50s. Now that he's in his <laughs> twilight, now that he's in his twilight years, he has much more mature discussions about Blade Runner. <laughs> Dan's 7 years younger than me, by the way. <laughs> um so the one thing that I wanted to discuss just briefly is the reference that Craig Tacoin made about people talking about a sequel versus a prequel, but also someone's response to 2049, which I thought was very, very interesting. And it's not really a source of contention among fandom because most people love 2049. I would say a good 85% of people are like, whoa, this film's amazing. Um, and even the people who, who don't like maybe love it, they'd still say, yeah, this was a really great film. But I do find it interesting that a lot of, or what seems to be, a popular opinion among people who are like, oh, I'm not really sure about 2049 is they feel like Denny Villeneuve Villeneuve did not create or recreate the world that um, Ridley Scott created accurately enough. It was a different world. And I find that really interesting because I feel like if that's what, if that's what made Blade Runner to you, then it wasn't going to be successful. And I think that Villeneuve needed to, create something that was his own and he didn't and someone said and i've heard this before that 2049 felt like a like a chanel commercial actually what i think is 2049 was a society that was uh responding to desolation the desolation of the blackout the fallout from the blackout things were different things were had just changed fundamentally. It's a very, very different world, whereas the world of the original Blade Runner was essentially steeped in some of the things that we're steeped in now, which is this pivot towards nostalgia and feeling good and going to bars and kind of um, trying to relive our past and not really deal with um, the, the things that are happening in the world today. And 2049 is a response to that. Yeah, I agree. You know, and uh, I didn't, prep this thought or statement, but in the conversation it's coming up. And so I'll throw it out there. Um, and with the understanding that first of all, there's nothing wrong with disliking 2049 or just being so steeped in the original that it's just like, you can't let your mind go there. And that's okay. We're not here to like tell anybody that their opinion is wrong or that, you know, it's subjective. Totally. But, but, but because I have run into, um, some older fans who I feel like maybe haven't given it a good shot or a good chance. Like for example, they only saw it once and then made up their opinion from there. And I mean, to be honest, I don't care what kind of genius you are. It's pretty difficult to watch 2049 once and really fully absorb it and understand it. It's just like the plot's more complex than the first film. I, I'm not saying it's, you know, a uh, stalker or anything like that, that like really requires 10 viewings to absorb it and understand it. I do want to say for those fans who are willing to be open-minded and think about it. And if you would like to enjoy 2049, but haven't found yourself doing that yet, I would have a suggestion because in some ways there's some similarity between, um, even though we're talking about the same medium, we're talking about comparing two films, it's a similar discussion to when we talk about comparing uh, Do Android's Philip K. Dick's novel to the film. And if you try and compare them, I think you are going to be disappointed. I think there are probably older fans who grew up with the 
book. Not that anyone's disappointed with the first Blade Runner, but that like wanted to see Mercerism or wanted to see more. And they, they have a little bit of disappointment that that didn't make it into the film. Um, and vice versa, I think, which was more common, people love Blade Runner so much, they go back and read the novel and they're disappointed because Deckard's character is more of a bureaucrat and, you know, all these reasons that we've talked about before. But my suggestion is to do what a lot of artists do and remember that these are different mediums, at least when we're talking about the novel versus the film. And when you look at them that way and look at them as separate works of art that don't necessarily need to be compared to one another, they're just part of the same universe, I think you can enjoy it a lot more. Uh, for example, uh, Isidore's character, which is Sebastian in the film, I think is uh, they spend a lot more time with him. And you can get a much deeper understanding of him, which actually does affect your viewing of Sebastian in the film. So getting back to 2049, I would suggest trying to watch 2049 with as little connection to the first film and do androids as you can. Watch it as its own independent thing and think of it that way. And I think if you watch it two or three times like that and just absorb the film in that way, then in a subsequent viewing, you can sort of think about it in terms of, and obviously it's a sequel. I mean, you can't get away from Deckard's in it and and Rachel and, and all that. Um, but I still think viewing it as its own thing um, allows you to let your guard down a little bit and sort of put the nostalgia away for just a second and sort of focus more on this product, which regardless of whether you love it or not, was made, was well made in terms of the production and how much time and effort they put into it and made with a lot of passion. I don't think, I think if you, if you don't think they put passion into it, you haven't watched enough of the behind the scenes stuff or interviews to understand that definitely Villeneuve and um, Ryan Gosling and a lot of the members of the production were fans first and loved the original. Yep. Right. I don't think that's a, something you could really argue against. Uh, or I could tell you you're wrong if you if you don't feel that way. And that's one thing I could say. I think you're wrong. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, viewing it as its own entity um, can help you step into that world a little bit. Again, they are intrinsically connected. But if you haven't emotionally connected with the film yet, try and do it that way. Detach yourself a little bit and then allow it to sort of seep in. And I think that that would be my suggestion for people who haven't gotten into it. Totally. And I, I, I also think that as fans and as lovers of like when we first experienced a movie back in the day or whatever, whatever movie it was for you, for me, for you might've been Blade Runner. For me, it was other films first before it was Blade Runner. Um, when we hold on to something uh, so tightly um, and it creates, and it has a space in our hearts that's so unique uh, that nothing else will occupy in that way. I think it's very hard to kind of open that, open that space up for a different interpretation and and largely Denis Villeneuve was not going to succeed in a sequel if he just recreated the the futurism of the you know 35 years earlier when Ridley Scott did it if he was going to make a successful film well first of all the story had to be good but secondly he had to bring his own ideas into it and I, I will um I will go out on a limb and say that Denis created a world that is wholly authentic, um, very different than the original, but it's also um, unmistakably Blade Runner, his own version of Blade Runner. You know, the, you know, the, the joy on the bridge, the pink joy on the bridge. Um, 
and so many other things you know when uh k is at the wallace corporation and you see he's at the the desk and it's that real big beautiful um set piece and the, the light is moving i mean i've never seen that in any any other film and he's not replicating the first film um but he's creating his own kind of texture so i think it's a really great thing but i think we also have to be open to the idea of something new um and i think sometimes fans tend to want to see the same things over and over because they're so attached to it and that's not always the best route to go but um i i do understand uh, people's love for um the aesthetics of the original and how important that is to them you're not gonna like you said you're kind of not gonna be able to please everyone um but anyways i just thought that was worthy of a small discussion point in this conversation yeah, totally agree. And again, this is a series about the first film, so we don't want to get too in the weeds on 2049. But yeah, I, I will add, um, it really doesn't affect the place in my psyche that the first film occupies. I've created a new space for it, and it fills that space. Um, again, the, the best analogy I can think of that I've used before is that they're two sides of the same coin, but as with a coin, you can't look at both sides at the same time. You have to flip the coin over and focus on what you're looking at. And I think that is really how I view the difference between the two films. So that kind of wraps up uh, our kind of segment with, with Craig and what he represents in terms of Kipple Zone and everything that we outlined. Again, uh, thank you to Craig for contributing, uh, for coming on the show and just really uh, do, putting in the work quietly behind the scenes for as long as he has um, a lot of this, as we both know. I wouldn't say it's thankless work um, because there's a lot of, I think just being a part of the community is, is, is thanks enough, but uh, a lot of it is, is work that is unnoticed and we wanted to take this opportunity to really say, Craig, we notice you. Um, we thank you for your contribution and we look forward to the future one with you. Totally. And uh, we'll, uh, move on to wrapping the episode with uh, Carla's thoughts and kind of her experience with Blade Runner. And uh, yeah. All right. So next uh, we're going to play for you. We, we asked um, one of the fans who's been around for a long time and has been involved in Blade Zone for a long time. Uh, Carla Rosa, who most people have seen her. She's very active in the groups and is often starting conversations and, you know, again, uh, just like we brought in Craig Shacoin, we wanted to bring in somebody who's active uh, both in the old blogs on Bladesone and in the current groups. And so you're going to hear uh, the voice of Carla from Portugal who recorded. She did a two-part bit. She recorded a poem that kind of describes her feelings on Blade Runner in her life, which is really beautiful. And then she sort of records her thoughts about fandom. And so we'll discuss both. When I close my eyes and think about Blade Runner, what do I see? I see the universe playing electric trains inside my heart. I'm flying a journey of light and darkness. It started somewhere in the early 90s. I remember a dark living room, my childhood house, a special place in my imagination. All elements were aligned from the first moment. My own mysterious and sometimes dark childhood house blended with a special VHS movie viewing as an adult. Time stops. It's late at night. 
I'm in a dark room. The only light I see comes from the TV. I see a tree, a digital tree forming on the screen. Green, red, origins, roots, blood, death. Am I real? My heart is pounding. A random choice. Destiny. Three, two, one. Ignition. I am a spinner. Steam, rain, anger, and love. Everyone's asleep now, but I'm about to wake up to the most real dream ever. I see my life suspended and reactivated again. The future is real, enhanced. Emotions reign before me. The breathtaking beauty, the enlightenment, the questions. I want to go further to the steam, to the darkness. Everything is drawn to the light. I'm lost in the streets, like I was so many times lost in that corridor. Fear. Who am I? Why do I need to go through pain to know what true love is? Why do I need rain and cold to dream about the sun? No way out. Glimpse outside my window. A new life awaits you. I am perception. I am the universe. I become what I am. More real than real. Origins. Who am I? Why did love hide in the shadows? I need more love, Father. But you were always living off-world. I am the power, the dream, the creative energy. I need to revisit this world because I need to walk through my own memories. Pay attention to all the details. Enhance. I need to live in this universe, for this universe is myself. It became my sight, my own emotions. Blade Runner is music. When I close my eyes and think about Blade Runner, I dream music. Do you mind if I smoke? I'm a Blade Runner fan since the late 80s, so it's interesting to reflect on the main differences and multiple influences of Blade Runner fandom community throughout the years. The first time I watched Blade Runner, I remember feeling the impact. The landscape, the sound of the spinner, Vangelis score, the iron flames. Reality was no longer here. Reality was this mesmerizing future, oppressive, poetic, beautifully addictive. I had to revisit this world over and over again because I felt I belonged there. I dived into this story. I remember the moment I started looking for Blade Runner content. I had the need to know more about this dystopian universe, to explore it further, to be immersed in the characters. Once you fall in love with this movie, you'll never leave because your life becomes a part of it. I think my first research was about Brian's sixth replicant line. And then I went to read the early scripts 
and know about other characters who didn't make it to the screen, like Mary and Hodge, the two replicants who would have died in the opening while they were coming to Earth with Roy and the others. My imagination brought him in, and this was one of the many mystical moments I had with this movie. I went off-world. I opened the secret door to the Blade Runner cult. In my opinion, uh, it's the power of possibility, the power of dreaming reality, the power of exploring details just to find they are endless and deeper every time we revisit them. Uh, the visuals and the score were like code to a deeper level. Watching Blade Runner was and still is like playing an interactive video game only to realize the console is your own heart. The future noir game where you find yourself questioning and by the way thank you Paul Seyman for creating this definite concept and your wonderful book. Future noir is the perfect description of Blade Runner. Fans can never thank you enough for your amazing work. You are our beloved guide through the future. Reality is just the feeling you get through your own experience and emotion of this world. And it becomes infinite. And after reading Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, uh, the circle was complete. This is the most fascinating movie of all times based on a cryptical and disturbing Philip K. Dick novel. The Android's Dream of Electric Ship is like the beautiful Origins Kenji sign uh, displayed in the movie. It resonates in a profound level. So both movie and novel are complex and unique and they share a common spectrum. They are both philosoph philosophical and prophetic and they deal with the same concepts love loss identity fear um, the director's cut came out shortly after this and it changed my life forever by the time it became my favorite cut it was darker it was deeper it was mysterious provocative and and then i found blade zone Back in the days, it was the exclusive online platform on all things Blade Runner. I can't express how important it was for the fandom community. We were walking on a desert and Blade Zone was the oasis, the ultimate oasis. We had all sort of data, trivia, forums, debates on Blade Runner. Uh, the, the Blade Runner Roundtable brought up so many interesting insights, so many deep discussions. I used to participate as sea beams. Um, this was the seed for everything that was coming afterwards. I remember having so many great discussions on the movie, still having that sense of wonder, that fresh sense of wonder, like a newborn explores the world. We were like a small group of friends sitting around the fire talking about this amazing movie that we love so much. We knew our technological limitations, but those limitations made us need to discuss it more, understand the power, spread the flames. It was an intimate experience, the power of individual thought. Things weren't so immediate, 
one could raise a question and only four or five days later, two or three people would answer it. We had time. We had much more time to reflect on the concepts than we have today. I'm not saying it was better, but it was certainly special and more intimate. We knew that fans were there, were really into Blade Runner. These days, Blade Runner discussions are like a fire. Sometimes the flames spread so quickly that they don't warm us. They can really burn and debates turn into fights in seconds. Questions are raised to an audience, not to an individual. I guess this might be the main difference between fandom in the 80s, 90s, and now. Texture. I'm talking about texture and texture of feelings. Despite of that, this new worldwide fandom vibe has its own intensity and potential. I feel I'm a part of a worldwide fandom community sharing ideas with other fans, namely in Facebook groups such as Ian Suter's Blade Runner Worldwide Fans Group and 2049's group, um, Shoulder of Orion's Fields of Galantha, and being a content editor on Blade's own page. It's wonderful, and this makes my heart full of joy, expanded. So thank you, Jamie, Patrick, and Dan, for raising something new something fresh. You gather the original fandom seeds, you sow them in the new fields of fandom, and you make them all grow into this amazing project that is Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. You are the future. Well, just a recap of who Carla is. You know, uh, she's been around for a long time. Um, she's kind of a, 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 I would say, a pillar in the Blade Runner fandom. Her, along with everyone else that we mentioned, like Paul Salmon, who I would say was kind of the first of us. Um, she's she's just been around a long time, and she's been involved in conversations. And but really, there's been a transition from sort of the forum-based discussions to Facebook and social media, and that's where everyone's going. And Blade Blade Zone has made that transition, um, but it's just a little bit of a different. It's a different landscape, um, but they've been there since day one, and they're kind of. I don't want. I almost want to use the term "old guard." I mean, they're not old, but it's like they they were there before us. And I've said this before. Without Carla and Salmon and Gary Kissel, Gary Cassell, sorry, and Gary Willoughby. We would not be here, and I just really think it's important to honor who they are, uh, much like we honored, uh, you know, and of course, Carla and all of those people came after Sarah Campbell, who we talked about earlier. So I, I just really want to kind of thank Carla for her her participation in fandom and her uh, kind of behind the scenes, because a lot of times you don't hear about what people do. We, You and I and Patrick are very public. People see videos with us. They see what we're doing, where we're going, what we're working on. Whereas with Blazone, we don't see any of that. And this kind of all happens behind the curtain. So I, I just, I love Carla's input and uh, just seeing her involved in fandom, seeing her passion, seeing my passion reflected in her and vice versa. It's just a really, it's a great thing. 
Yeah. And uh, I wanted to touch a little bit. I, I think her comments speak for themselves, but I wanted to touch a little bit on because, um, you know, we've tried in several in different interviews. I talk about it a little bit with Gary, but it's hard to get that long term perspective from the sort of late 80s, early 90s blog type websites and how those discussions went compared to the Facebook like debates and things that happen. Now I'm in a lot of Facebook groups for different things, political groups, you know, uh, other podcast groups and discussions tend to get fiery pretty quick. I think that our Blade Runner groups are, uh, on the milder side, not due to lack of passion. I think just people try not to like fight with each other about stuff, <laughs> which is good. Um, but it is interesting what she brought up about the timing of it, where before it's almost like sending emails back and forth where you like you have a little more time to kind of think about your comments. Um, and nowadays, you know, the Facebook discussions are almost live. And so it's it's a lot faster and it can get a lot more heated depending on what you're talking about. Um, I mean, sometimes you send stuff out that you're like, oh, I realized I misread what some what scene somebody was talking about. I just did that the other day where I had to apologize. Not that I said anything rude, but I had to apologize because I was like, oh, I misunderstood what scene you were talking about, you know. But um, it's certainly nice that we have this medium to be able to get fans together. I mean, Fields of Kalantha, our discussion group is upwards of 800 plus members. So um, that's really exciting that we have a place where we can all go in real time. And again, we're... We give Bladezone their due as much as we can. They're still around, and um, we, you know, we've we've put up links in our episodes before. Um, so yeah, it's just a it's a great community, and I really enjoy being a part of it, and I enjoy sort of spearheading certain things, and and Carla and Ian Suter and everybody else that's um, sort of a conversation starter and and on the regular brings their passion to the groups um, is really what keeps everything going about this universe um, and about these films. And one thing that sets uh, the Blade Runner fandom apart from Star Wars or Alien or Marvel or so many others, I think, number one, the the fandom community tends to be a little older. Um, there, There's passion there, but it's a different... It's very measured for the most part. Rarely do you see people get in, you know, these really heated, ridiculous arguments where people are name-calling um, it's a very, it's just a very chill fan base and there's a lot of respect, um, from one fan to another. Um, everyone kind of understands that different versions of this film exist. Um, and everyone seems to really respect, you know, different loves for different versions. And we can have discussions about that, not knocking like star Wars or whatever, but we've seen and heard what's going on there and, uh, some of the, the things, the issues that have made headlines and, um, it's just really nice to be involved in a fandom where that doesn't happen and it hasn't really happened. But again, I think Blade Runner and the Blade Runner universe is really a, on a different level in terms of the philosophy, um, the the issues that are presented, the discussions that those issues bring forth. Um, whereas it's not just like, oh, cool guns, cool ships. There is that part of it for sure. But it's far more about like, well, what does this mean to you? What what does what does being alive mean to you? What is being alive? What do, those discussions that we've had, like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean when someone who isn't human says they're human? Who do, you know, and all of those allegories. There's just, there's, it's the, like the title of our series, A 700 Layer Cake. That's really what fandom is. It's very dense and uh, in-depth. 
Yeah, totally. Um, and I think Star Wars is a good contrast where not that you can't identify with characters in Star Wars. Obviously, people do. But I think that this is more realistic science fiction to where like it's more immediate in the future and we can see ourselves in that place. And so it's a little bit easier to identify with the characters and think about how would you feel if you were in the situation and how would it affect your life and how does it affect your life? I think Star Wars is a little more fun and and not to say like Star Wars has its depth for sure, especially with the newer stuff that they've been doing. I know you feel strongly about um, The Last Jedi and, and we've seen, you know, kind of some more philosophical depth to a certain extent in the new Star Wars iterations. But I think Blade Runner was born of that um, from inception to now. And so especially 2049 is, again, the philosophy of it or the concepts they bring up are even deeper or even more complex than the first film. And so it really brings in a lot of discussion and a lot of passion. And I think that's a, that's a really exceptional part of this world that we're involved in. And that's what I really love about it. I absolutely agree. So I, I, I just, in closing, I wanted to thank everyone who contributed to this episode, to Carla, to Craig, um, and just again, the, the larger fan base and everyone who's been around, who's paved the way for shoulder of Orion and uh, we are excited about the future. We, there's a lot to look forward to, whether it's just the comics or the anime series, which is going to really blow the, the universe wide open again. Um, and it's going to be set in, I think, in 2032, kind of midway between 2019 and 2049 or 2033. I don't know. Um, but it's just an, it's an exciting time to be a fan. And uh, we look forward to talking to you guys about everything else. Yeah, we're excited to continue this series and uh, we're keeping it organic. We don't have an end point yet. We're just kind of going to keep things going throughout the year. It's a big year for us. So we like to focus on the first film and kind of take things as they go. So uh, thanks everyone for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Dear Sarah Campbell, thank you. Thank you for who you were, for beginning this long and satisfying journey. You may not be around anymore, but we feel you in the rafters. Your voice echoes in our discussions. It is because of who you were and because of City Speak that we exist today in all of our iterations. As I look back to history, from the first release of Blade Runner in 1982 through 2017, when the sequel released and the response from fandom, I keep thinking to myself, thank God this woman existed. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.